My conversation partner today is Connie Rice, a friend, sister in Christ, and fractional boss. That is, she's a member of the Board of Governors for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, sponsor of this podcast, for which I serve as president and CEO. And that means I'm accountable to that august <laughs> body, which leaves me honored, humbled, and at times scared. So uh, in fear and trembling, welcome to our esteemed governor, Connie Rice. Connie, thank you for joining me for this episode of Shank Talks Bunhofer. Oh, I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited to have you. Now, before we delve into your area of expertise, I want to fully introduce you, if I may, in a formal way by reading your CV, or at least parts of it. It has been said that Constance Rice can lecture for 36 straight hours about C.S. Lewis's life and writings and never repeat herself once. Such is the extent <laughs> of her knowledge of Lewis, Tolkien, the Inklings, and all its related members and materials. Professor Rice has a BA in English from Chico State University in California, a BA in Bible and Theology from Trinity Bible College in Ellendale, North Dakota, a master's degree from Tennessee State University in Nashville, and doctoral studies in communication at Regent University in Norfolk, Virginia. Connie has been active in pastoral ministry for over four decades. Her gentle, compassionate approach toward all people is demonstrated in her remarkable gift of hospitality. Connie's dining table is the scene of life-transforming moments for many people. And I guess, Connie, these days, as we record this, it's still the epoch of the COVID pandemic, which means your table is probably virtual, like so many but equally a blessing to all who sit at it. So here we go. Let's go right to your area of specialty, which is C.S. Lewis, his writings. Uh, and I want to specifically get to the Chronicles of Narnia. But before that, can you help us by introducing us to C.S. Lewis? I'm, I'm not going to take for granted that everyone knows everything about Lewis. What would you like to tell us about C.S. Lewis? Well, C.S. Lewis uh, was a professor at Oxford University. Uh, he was also a one of the most important um, apologetic voices in the 20th century, um, along with Francis Schaeffer. Uh, there's some real similarities between uh, their two uh, apologetic uh, approaches. Um, he was, came to faith um, uh, later in life in uh, his early 30s. Uh, prior to that, um, he uh, called himself an atheist. Uh, and uh, when he came to faith, uh, it was uh, really kind of like a Paul of a Paul. Uh, uh, conversion. It was very um, quiet and yet very dramatic. Uh, he uh, has written uh, one of the things that I love about him from an English professor's uh, position is that he 
writes across multiple genres. So he writes apologetic um, literature like Mere Christianity. Uh, he writes adult fiction like The Screwtape Letters, Until We Have Faces, and The Great Divorce. He writes children's literature, uh, which, you know, we have the, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, seven books. Um, he uh, writes uh, books on miracles and on prayer and on the Psalms. Uh, he uh, played a key role on the committee for the Episcopal Church um, in uh, creating another uh, up-to-date version of the Psalms. So uh, just an, an amazing, prolific uh, individual. He wrote poetry um, as well. His first literary ambitions uh, before he became a Christian was to be a poet. Um, and he did write some early poetry, but uh, he then continued to write poetry um, over his lifetime. Uh, he, uh, to me, has been a, a spiritual mentor um, in the readings of his works and the life that he lived. Many people ha have said that knew him, that he was the best or the greatest Christian that they knew, which is a profound kind of statement. Um, you can kind of start with him at any point. Uh, you can begin with his children literature or read Mere Christianity or his space trilogy. I love sci-fi and he wrote um, a space trilogy as well. Um, so you can jump in and uh, kind of pick the genre that uh, appeals to you. Um, and uh, uh, there's just a lot to work with with C.S. Lewis. And he was a member of the Inklings. Uh, he and J.R.R. Tolkien were the uh, founders of, of the Inklings. And so there's a whole nother circle of writers uh, that you move into. When I started working with C.S. Lewis and kind of declared him as my focus of scholarly pursuit, um, I quickly realized that I was jumping into uh, a, a literary black hole <laughs> that um, I still haven't exhausted. Is that no, a good start? It sure is. And he, <laughs> or it seems to me, and I'm an amateur when it comes to C.S. Lewis, uh, I've read him, never really done research uh, about him or, you know, into his work. But he just seems inexhaustible because he was just prolific. Uh, his product is just massive. Uh, and it bears mentioning, um, am I right? Born in 1898. Do I remember that right? Yes. Uh, born in 1898, died in 1963. So he was a contemporary of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'm going to admit I should know better, but I'm not sure whether there was ever any contact. Of course, Bonhoeffer was a pastor in London uh, during the time that uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, was teaching at Oxford, and Bonhoeffer had been to Oxford a number of times. I, 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 are you aware of whether Bonhoeffer had contact with Lewis at all? Um, not that I have come across. That that's a good question. Um, uh, Lewis, uh, pretty much stayed in, um, Oxford, um, or Cambridge, um, where he was uh, a professor later in his life. 
Um, I don't know. That's a very good question. Somebody who's joining us uh, eavesdropping on this conversation will know mm -hmm. the answer to that. So somebody email me and tell me, uh, set me straight <laughs> here, whether there was any contact. I'm not aware of any. Uh, but here were these two uh, amazing, uh, you know, inimitable uh, figures at that period of time. And as you mentioned, of course, such a broad uh, spectrum of literature that came from Lewis's uh, hand and uh, mind. And of course, one of the best known is the Chronicles of Narnia. You mentioned seven books in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Horse and His Boy, The Silver Chair, The Last Battle, and The Magician's Nephew, at least in the order in which he wrote them. Can you introduce us to that series, uh, how you uh, see and appreciate the Chronicles of Narnia? You mentioned children's literature, but boy, I read it as an adult, and adults get an awful lot out of it. Oh, yes. Uh, Lewis, along with George MacDonald and J.R. Tolkien, um, had quite a bit to say about the uh, use of the fairy tale um, as a genre in literature. And uh, the, the argument that Lewis uh, received, even from members of the Inklings, you know, why are you writing children's literature. He was in his 50s. He didn't have any children, <laughs> um, you know, and what kind of gives you the right uh, to write uh, children's literature. Um, and uh, he defended it by saying that he's never forgotten what it was like to be a child. And uh, Tolkien and Lewis would argue that a, a good fairy tale, the right kind of fairy tale is for all ages. And even in the introduction to The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe that uh, Lewis wrote to uh, his uh, grandchild, uh, you know, he says, you know, it may be not until you're an adult that you can appreciate, you know, this story, but fairy tales are for everyone. Um, they also argued against uh, the modern fairy tale, which didn't follow the traditional uh, development of a fairy tale once upon a time and ending with happily ever after. There has to be a happy ending um, to a fairy tale. And many of the modern uh, fairy tales have lost uh, that. There has to be a, a lesson, uh, a moral. Um, and the Chronicles of Narnia, are, there's just so many wonderful spiritual lessons there and the story that Lewis told without being overtly Christian. Um, and uh, often in our family, we've, we've read them to our children multiple times, and our children are reading them to their children, um, that, uh, you know, we, we quote the Chronicles of Darnia, um, and citing specific uh, situations and characters as a means to um, talk about spiritual things. Um, so the fairy tale is a very powerful medium uh, that both Tolkien in uh, first The Hobbit and then in The Lord of the Rings and that Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, chose to communicate very important truths. 
How I've I found that fascinating, just as you were telling that, because of course we think about how important the child and children are to Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, yes, it, it, he's he communicates to children and with children, and we're all children uh, in our relationship to God. Uh, we are uh, God's children. So in this uh, multi-part fairy tale of the Chronicles of Narnia, can you give us an idea of the arc of the story? You, you said, you know, once upon a time, happily ever after. What, what comes in between all that in the Chronicles? Well, it's the story of the Pavenzi children, uh, two boys, two girls, uh, particularly the youngest, Lucy, and who find their way into um, the magical world of Narnia. And while in Narnia, they experience many, uh, uh, many adventures, but part of what uh, is the plot of the story is actually a prophecy that they discover uh, given to them by the, the beavers um, who play important role in the story. And the prophecy is, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And the, the, the story is that Narnia, it's winter, but never Christmas. And that the white witch has a pat, uh, cast um, spell upon Narnia, uh, preventing it from ever being uh, winter. And you know, as a child, we can put up with a long winter, <laughs> but there's got to be Christmas. Hmm. And it, this, is, this is winter, but never Christmas. Hmm. And one of the key uh, turns in the story is when Father Christmas appears on the scene and the children and the beavers know that Aslan is on the move. And uh, shortly after, they meet Aslan. And another important part of the story is that um, the, the youngest boy, Edmonds, has become a traitor. He is sided with the White Witch. And as a traitor, the punishment is death. And Aslan lays down his life, not for the whole of the world or universe like we know with uh, Christ's death, but very symbolic of Christ's death. And he, he dies on the stone table, which is a, a picture of the Old Testament covenant uh, and the stone, stone tablets. And he is resurrected as Christ was resurrected. And it's a beautiful part of the story. And, and, and then it, bears, it just to, bears mentioning that Aslan we're talking about is not a human being, but a lion. A lion. He is the, the king of the animal kingdom. Yes, thank you. And uh, very much a Christ uh, figure. In and then at the end of the story, um, uh, the white witch is defeated in battle. And the second part of the prophecy was when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Carapavel in throne, the evil time will be over and done. And uh, the Pavenzi children, who are the rightful heirs of the throne um, of Narnia, 
become uh, kings and queens of Narnia. So you have that the happy ending, evil is defeated, uh, justice is meted out. Um, what uh, Lewis, uh, what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien called uh, the uh, consolation that comes that should be a part of all fairy tales. Mm. Well, I learned a lot from your rehearsal of that story. I read it 40 <laughs> years ago. So uh, it's been a little while and I needed a refresher, but I, I, I have to confess, I learned that for four decades, I have been mispronouncing the Prevency children's last name as Prevency. So thank you. Oh. <laughs> I'm blushing, but I appreciate the correction. Um, and it is, it's a magnificent story. And even as you retell it to me, I'm, get, I'm literally getting goosebumps uh, because it is such a beautifully told story with so much meaning to it. Although not all scholars agree that everything about it is analogous. In other words, do you see, do you see the totality of it as an analogy or just component well, parts of it as analogous? Uh, component parts, because um, Lewis said, you know, that it's a fairy tale. It's not an analogy because an analogy, everything is uh, point by point symbolic. And and we see in the death of Aslan that he, he dies for Edmund, um, who is a traitor. But of course, Christ dies for the whole of the world. Um, Aslan is resurrected. Um, which again mirrors uh, what we see in Christ. Um, he comes, um, he dies, and he is resurrected, as we say in the liturgy. Um, so it, it's not meant to be a point-to-point -point analogy, but there is a symbolism. It would probably be the, the more correct literary term. Hmm. And, of course, those symbols... Um play a very important part in dealing with the different themes, which when I did my little refresher uh, research, uh, it came back to memory, the good versus evil, the temptation, uh, faith, of course, courage, cowardice, uh, bravery, uh, right versus wrong, all those different themes that, that play in there. And that's where I want to kind of steer our conversation uh, for the next several minutes, because the one thing that came to my mind recently, just by looking at the state of affairs as we are living them now at the time of our conversation, which is uh, December of 2020, we've been through a very tumultuous year, not only in the United States, but globally around the world. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, a, a very strange period of time politically in our country, and that's reflected in other countries as well. Uh, and of course, the nations of the earth tend to react to one degree or another to what happens in the United States and places like the UK, Lewis's uh, home. And and to me, some of this has felt a little bit like the Narnian winter, uh, the pandemic yeah. itself, and what it's imposed yeah. on us in terms of relationship, tensions, 
uh, anxiety, uh, death, fear, all of those elements reminded me of the Narnian winter. Can you talk about the Narnian winter, the, the great winter, the long winter? I can't remember the exact terms Lewis uses, yeah. but all of those, I think. It's, um, it's a winter that has um, prevailed in Narnia for a hundred years. And all of the, um, the creatures, the dwarfs, the um, talking animals, uh, the you know, various uh, creations in these uh, stories um, know that there's this prophecy um, that a time will come when Aslan returns. And Aslan comes and goes in Narnia, and he's not been in Narnia for a long time. Um, so, uh, you know, he's part of that, that prophecy is when Aslan roars that, uh, winter will be brought to an end, but as the, uh, beavers and the Pavenzi children, um, are fleeing the white witch and are attempting to reach Aslan and his uh, army, um, they are, uh, interrupted they hide in a cave and they, they hear a, a, a sled. They think it's the white witch, but when they come out, it's, it's, uh, it's father Christmas, not Santa Claus, father Christmas. Hmm. And uh, father Christmas is uh, the first tangible sign that the thaw is beginning that Aslan is on the move and he brings gifts uh, to the beavers, uh, to Mr. Beaver, his, when they return home, their dam, his dam will be repaired. And for Mrs. Beaver, who is really uh, the epitome of homemaking, uh, a new sewing machine. And to the children, um, he gives weapons because they have a war that they are going to be participating in as uh, they move and towards Aslan and uh, towards the end of, of the story. Um, but um, the thaw begins. Edmunds, uh, Edmund, who is the uh, youngest boy and who has been uh, captured now by the White Queen and is being uh, taken with her, he begins to see that the uh, there's mud, more mud than there is snow, and that the crocuses are beginning to bloom. So there's these indications that that spring is on the way, and spring is resurrection and hope, and the uh, uh, return of Aslan and the um, end of the reign of the uh, uh, White Queen. Um, I have to tell just a little story. Uh, Dan and I were. Uh, went to China uh, a, a number of years ago. We were invited uh, by a, a Christian organization that placed uh, teachers um, in the universities in China. And we spoke in two different universities and in, in inter international school and in other kinds of settings. But uh, when we were um, at one of the universities, uh, the, we were invited by the English club of the university to do a presentation. And uh, so uh, I read from the Chronicles of Narnia from the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And while I was reading, Dan painted. And that was something that uh, we've done many times. And he paints uh, an image of Aslan um, as he's painting. And so 
I'm reading and Dan is painting and I'm reading from uh, the, uh, the, the death and resurrection of Aslan and then leading to the great battle that takes place. And I'm, I'm trying to time my reading to match up with Dan's completion of what he's drawing. And so I thought he was finishing up and, and I, I stopped reading um, just before um, Aslan uh, kills the White Witch. And so uh, I pause and I ask the students what, um, you know, if they had any questions and uh, immediately their hands shot up and they wanted to know what happened to the White Witch. <laughs> it wasn't enough <laughs> to hear the whole story. But there had to be that justice in the end. The white witch evil had to be um, uh, uh, destroyed. So that's kind of the story arc there of uh, the ending of this winter and the defeat of the white witch and culminating with the Pivenzi children being enthroned at Care Prevail. Um, so wow. I, I see some... Yeah, I see some interesting uh, parallels to uh, kind of uh, the world that uh, we're in. Um, uh, we want justice. Uh, we want uh, uh, whatever our perceived evils, you know, are to uh, be defeated. Um, you know, we're we're looking at this pan pandemic, you know, that um, uh, has changed, altered all of our lives. We're kind of in a a winter without Christmas <laughs> um, in many ways. And I think politically um, uh, something similar um, is happening. Does that help? It does. And, you know, uh, again, I'm, I'm struck with uh, several streams of thought, but one of them being the time in which Lewis is writing this story, of course, what has just played out for him on the global stage, a world war, one very close to him, much closer than it was to any of us, you know, anyone here in the United States. Uh, London was bombed. Um, you know, England was bombed. Uh, the, the war was in full, uh, you know, rapacious dimension just a short ways across uh, the channel in Europe. Hitler, of course, uh, had horrified the world with his crimes against humanity on a scale the world had never known, or at least had never been fully published. And, you know, all the rest. It, it, do you see that as informing the story? That global catastrophe? Uh, uh, yes, I do. And in fact, um, uh, although Lewis completed the Lion Witch in the Wardrobe in 1950, he had started this story there in the uh, archives at um, the Bodleian uh, Library in Oxford that I was able to access. There are uh, notes in uh, a little short segments of story um, that grew into what we know as the Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. And he was actually writing that in 1944. And he uh, are, also... Are you saying uh, you saw his notes? You, did you see his notes? Yes, not just oh. 
see them, but I was able to handle them. Handle them? You mean in his hand, in his writing? Yes. Yes. Oh my yes. goodness. More goosebumps. Yeah. More goosebumps oh yes. <laughs> That's the delight. That's the delight of scholarship. And and you know that with Bonhoeffer, your trip sure. you know, to see the places that were connected, you know, to his life. Yeah, it is an extraordinary experience. Um, but um uh to to finish that thought that during the war they uh evacuated children from London. Um, into the countryside, and uh, C.S. Lewis and his brother hosted um, actually a couple sets of children um, in their home, and that's kind of out of which grew uh, this idea for the story, and these four children, the Pevenzi children, who have been evacuated from London um, and are staying in the professor's house. Wow, so he was hardly the proverbial... uh you know, uh, ivory tower, uh, theorist, he, he, he engaged in the trauma of his own day. And we know that in, in more than one way, but certainly with those children who are being, uh, vouchsafed, uh, from the terrors of war, uh, and, and I didn't realize they were actually in his home. Yes, yes. And uh, something that a lot of people don't know is that during the war, um, uh, Lewis went out to the areas where soldiers were being prepared to go over uh, seas, and uh, he spoke with them, uh, preached, uh, gave devotionals and emotional support. He was too old to fight in the war, but he was very much engaged. And he has delightful stories about um, uh, that, you know, because of the uh, shortage of uh, foods and uh, the uh, restrictions, I'm forgetting what the word is, um, uh, that, uh, you know, there wasn't uh, a lot of, uh, you know, like hams and the really mm-hmm. delightful things that one would eat. And there was an American who sent food packages to Lewis. And uh, when they came, um, he would invite his friends over and they would have a delightful meal. Um, uh, you know, so he, he understood what it was to, because uh, he fought in World War I. Um, and, and now there's second war that had come. And he understood those things. And that's in part the setting for the screw tape letters is uh, the central character is a young man who's about to be drafted, called into war. Wow. So, uh, he really was, uh, experienced in the concrete realities of his day. So, so it's not really a stretch to look at the Chronicles of Narnia, the story through the lens of, uh, interpreting social, political, global affairs and human suffering, the, the, the suffering that attaches to that, the concrete realities of human evil or evil much worse than human evil, satanic evil perpetrated by humans. So all around uh, Lewis's writing of this material is uh, uh, a story of massive 
human suffering, perpetration of evil, uh, the consequences, all of that. And yet he remains an optimist. You, you can see that yeah. in his other writings as well. He's not a pessimist. He's not a doomsday prophet. He sees a brighter tomorrow, a, a brighter horizon uh, dawning. Which is, which is the delight of the fairy tale is the genre, is it has a happy ending. Yeah, and uh, happy indeed. And if anyone has seen the film, uh, you you can see that very dramatically uh, in the film. Well, if I can just ask you this, Connie, in my association of the winter with the period of time we've just lived through here in the United States, you know, for me, you're an evangelical Christian uh, as I am. Uh, we've both spent our adult lives engaged in ministry, mostly within the evangelical sphere. I don't think that's uh, presumptuous to say of you. I mean, that's where we met each other and, and how we know each other, at least professionally. Uh, and for me, I've been very grieved by what has happened to my fellow believers during this period of time. Uh, there's been a lot of acrimony, a lot of division. Um, Christians have behaved in ways that at least don't seem on the surface to be compatible with the nature of the gospel, the ministry model or message of Christ. And for me, that's been a very deep winter. And yet yeah. at the same yeah. time, I, I see some of those evidences you were referring to in the Narnia story of the thawing of winter, uh, the puddles around the mud, uh, the droplets uh, of melting ice uh, on my back. And do you see the same thing? Do you see a, 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 a thawing of, of winter here? Uh, yes, and, and I agree with you. I have equally been troubled and grieved by um, the behavior uh, that I've seen uh, among uh, Christians. And um, I guess I'm hopeful uh, that we can begin to uh, get our, our feet under us again and to begin to um, not be so politicized about everything, but really come back to our core faith um, and beliefs and to um, act more according to the Gospels and uh, how uh, Christ and the Apostles modeled for us um, a way, what, Dan, what my husband calls the, the way of Christ. And I, I think we've lost that. You know, uh, interesting you say that because uh, when you just said, you know, when we're politicized by so many things, and of course the politicization of the gospel, the politicization of the church, the politicization of Jesus himself uh, was, of course, uh, the condition of things during Bonhoeffer's era, and really what he gave himself to was 
the repair of all that damage that was done by the political co-optation of the church yes. in Germany. And I and I remind people it was the Evangelische Kirche, the, the evangelical church of Germany that he was so concerned with and that he was a part of and that had been so so badly damaged in that period of political co-optation. Uh, and, yeah. and I think of that as winter. I think of that as cold, um, frozen, where when I think of the gospel, the message um, model ministry of Christ, I think of as very warm, as very inviting, uh, very compassionate, uh, welcoming, loving, and all those things seem to me to be the warmth of summer, not the frigid cold of winter. So, you know, of course, we have not only C.S. Lewis to assist us here with his beautiful children's story in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, but we have the gospel itself that gives us reason to hope for the thawing of hearts, the thawing of culture, uh, the warmth of uh, welcome into the family of God and into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, all of these things. And how interesting we're talking about this uh, as Christmas approaches. I'm not sure when our conversation will actually play. It has to get queued up and it's released on a certain schedule, but I think it'll probably be heard in Christmas tide or somewhere around Christmas epiphany. Hanukkah, by the way, our, our co-chair of our clergy commission, uh, Rabbi Jack Moline would remind us that Hanukkah is just as warm as Christmas. And of course, Jesus celebrated yeah. the festival of lights when the candles yeah. warm up a room. Yeah. Uh, so whether Father Christmas or Uncle Hanukkah, uh, we have reason to hope because it's God who shines his light and warmth on us uh, in his inviting message of love that's epitomized in uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And love is, is something warm generated out of the heart, which keeps the body warm. So all of these, there I go with my own spins of analogy there. But um, <laughs> if, if somebody comes away from our conversation today, Connie, saying, wow, I just haven't done enough with Lewis. I haven't read enough of Lewis or I haven't visited C.S. Lewis in a long time. How would you guide someone like me uh, to get back in touch with Lewis and the timeless message that he has for all of us through all of his uh, literary works? Where should we start? Well, you know, the, the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe is a good start. Uh, mere Christianity, if you want to look at his uh, apologetic writing. Um, the Screwtape Letters is adult fiction. Um, I taught it uh, two or three times every year, and I never got tired of going through it. Um, 
You could, um, if you're a, a sci-fi fan, you could uh, start with his um, the uh, Space Trilogy, Paralandra. Um, those are all good starting points. Um, and uh, a good biography. Um, probably, uh, in my opinion, the best is, uh, uh, by, is called Jack um, by uh, Sayer. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, you're kind of more interested in the, the background of his life and, and who he was. So those are people ask me that question often. And I think, you know, just kind of jump in uh, with the kind of writing that you're comfortable with. And then you'll, you'll keep going further. And if you like Anthony Hopkins, you'll love the film Shadowlands. Oh, yeah. In which Hopkins plays C.S. Lewis. Uh, and um, you see him, of course, with his friends, the Inklings, his colleagues. Uh, at What's the pub in Oxford where they would meet? Uh, was it? Uh, um, the Eagle and Child. That's it. Eagle and Child. I've been there. You've been there, no doubt. Yes. And uh, you yes. see a lot of photos of him meeting uh, with Tolkien and others. Uh, in that pub at, in Oxford. And um, so lots of ways, thank you, uh, for us to be introduced or reintroduced to C.S. Lewis. And I, uh, I don't know if you would agree, you're the scholar, I'm the amateur here, but it seems like we need C.S. Lewis in this time yes. of winter thaw and yes, summer he is, warmth. He's, he's, he's still very relevant very relevant to the times and uh, difficulties that we're experiencing in the 20th, uh, 20th century, um, 21st century. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, frankly, I think we need his help in our healing, in our restoration. I think C.S. Yeah. Lewis, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, our namesake, uh, these are two people who posthumously can help us uh, during this thaw and uh, can help us warm our hearts and our minds and find some healing and repair uh, to the damage done inside and outside of the church and other religious communities uh, in the culture at large in our neighborhoods, even perhaps in our families. Uh, C.S. Lewis has wise words and good guidance and a beautiful biography, uh, his own life to help us uh, through these difficult times and, and find uh, that happy ending, which awaits us. So uh, now speaking of what you do, uh, with C.S. Lewis, that's not your only interest. You have lots of other interests, and one being a new venture that you and your husband have launched recently, and I want to talk about that. But I think Dan's going to do that. Can is Dan yes. still nearby and could join yeah, us in uh, that part of it? I'm going to I'm going to pass on the earbuds. Okay, and let me just say thank you, uh, Connie Rice, Professor. Governor of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, scholar. Thank you, Connie Rice, for 
a wonderful time of conversation. And now I think I just heard Dan Rice's voice. Is that Father Dan Rice? Yes. 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 Sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. This is a kitchen table conversation. You can interrupt me all you want. Besides, your wife is one of my bosses, so you better have the right to interrupt me anytime you want. But I had asked her to put you on, Dan, because uh, you have just retired from uh, rector. That is, for those who are not Anglicans or Episcopalians, uh, that means pastor, senior pastor. You've just retired from a senior pastorate uh, and a very long tenure uh, in pastoral work. And now, uh, instead of sitting on your front porch and rocking, you've decided to launch a whole new <laughs> ministry venture, and Connie is in that with you. Will you tell us about that, What's what you've got going now? Sure. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, uh, somebody uh, said... Uh, the Father Rice was stepping down. I said, well, I'm more like revving up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And but, don't uh, you look at, man, you just lost okay. a bunch of weight. You look like uh, Mr. Perfect and uh, a new oh, lease goodness. on life and a new lease on ministry. Thank you. Well, we uh, we have, uh, we're, tr we're trying to plan our next 20 years of ministry. So, uh, which, you know, people yeah. say, well, at your age, 20 years of ministry? Well, yeah. I mean, why not, right? Hey. So we are uh, <laughs> we're launching a, a new ministry called Cathedral Arts Ministries. And that's it's a unique teaching ministry with the goal uh, of encouraging, inspiring, motivating people to enrich their lives through the arts. And what a beautiful medium literally speaking as yeah. well as figuratively <laughs> yeah. uh to convey uh great spiritual truths can you give us a little no pun intended a little picture of what that oh, yeah. actually how that will actually how it is unfolding now as we speak yeah actually oh thank you uh well the picture of it is that we are um trying to uh, address uh, issues of um, beauty, and of course, beauty is a big word and it's a powerful word. It's a, it's a word like truth, you know, because it originates with uh, with God, you know, before things were were made. So we're uh, trying to address the issue of beauty uh, in the church, beauty in our communities, beauty uh, in the world, and you know how transformative that is. So we're we're trying to nurture people and uh whether it's their own soul or their family or their community or their cultural life we're trying to nurture that to, and to nourish people's worlds through all kinds of arts um not just painting or drawing but it also extends into hospitality and architecture and mm, making beautiful rooms and those kinds of things uh, because beauty is a uh, is sort of a, a picture of or a um a descriptor for God himself. So whenever we're moving towards beauty, uh, we're, we're moving towards God. Well, that's profound. And I have seen you do this kind of work because of course, Cheryl and I met the two of you when we had the joy, the blessing, uh, to be under your care, uh, as a pastor, uh, at Emmanuel Anglican, 
uh, parish in uh, Seattle when we were yeah. there. We were both on academic leaves of absence, and uh, Cheryl was finishing a long-delayed degree. I was finishing my doctoral work, and we came into your care and into your <laughs> it company. It was wonderful. And what a bonus yes. to now have you both as not only friends, but colleagues, co-laborers mm -hmm. in the vineyard. And uh, now uh, to uh, have learned early on about this new expression of ministry. And if folks want to know more about how to get involved with Cathedral Arts Ministry, how can they do that? Well, we have a website and you can go to the website at camarts.com and it's uh you type in cam-arts.com cam-arts.com it's arts is plural there camarts.com and uh you can pretty much connect with us uh through the website any day wonderful and we'll put that in the text supporting this episode of the podcast folks so look for a live link We'll put it there. You can meet these Thank two you. beautiful people. And I mean beautiful. I mean physically beautiful, <laughs> spiritually beautiful, uh, intellectually beautiful people, uh, Dan and Connie Rice. We are blessed to have both of you a part of our lives and a part of the work at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute and now to be supporters from the sidelines of Cathedral Arts ministry thank you both for spending the time You're very welcome with me thank you i hope it's not the last time we have a conversation i'd like to do one with you next uh oh that'd be great that'd my be great. dear reverend dr brother uh and uh, <laughs> and and co-laborer uh let's have a conversation i know you have so much to talk about and of course bunhofer uh was an artist himself i mean in the sense mm -hmm. uh, he both drew he sketched, mm -hmm. uh, he mm -hmm. was uh, a musician uh, yes. and, uh, and a writer. Uh, so uh -huh. he was an artist himself and saw uh, the, the importance of that. So we need to have our own conversation about where Dan Rice meets Dietrich Bonhoeffer on that. Oh, time. that'd be great. And I look forward <laughs> to it. That'd be great. Uh, Thank you. So please say another goodbye to Connie for me, Dan. And uh, <laughs> I hope it won't be too long. This plague passes over us and we have Indeed. the joy. Blessings of to you and Cheryl and, and the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as well. All right. Thank you both. All righty. God bless you.